Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a conversational podcast about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health, brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. For those of you who have listened before, you might remember that Karabazi, one of Opal's co-founders, is also a former University of Washington cross-country and track athlete. And she's the creator of Opal's exercise and sport program, which aims to ensure that clients' relationship to movement and sport is an integral part of their treatment and eating disorder recovery. Today, Kara, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified eating disorder specialist, is honored to be joined by Dr. Riley Nichols, a sports psychologist who also specializes in the treatment of athletes with eating disorders. Dr. Nichols is the director of the Victory Program at McCollum Place, which is the nation's first specialized intensive eating disorder treatment facility for athletes. Dr. Nichols has a Master's of Science in Sports Psychology from Ithaca College and a Ph.D. in Counseling Psychology from Fordham University. Along with regularly speaking to athletes, coaches, and sports medicine personnel about issues related to disordered eating and unbalanced relationship to exercise and sport, Dr. Nichols also has a private practice in St. Louis, where he primarily works with athletes addressing both clinical and performance concerns. In addition to competing in endurance sports for over 15 years, Dr. Nichols is also a running coach and a USA triathlon coach. Today, Kara and Riley, certainly kindred spirits in their work with eating disorders and athletes, discuss athlete identity, training, performance, and sports psychology. Well, Riley, I know one of the things that you enjoy talking about is identity as it relates to athletes. And I'm curious yeah. um, why that particular topic is of interest for you. I, I think it's it's multifaceted. I think when you think of, of identity and, and the implications that it has on many levels. So, of course, I think identity at some degree can and will impact um, enjoyment of sport and, of mm -hmm. course, sport performance for athletes. But I think it also, too, greatly impacts and influences how an individual thinks about themselves, their place in the world, how they derive value and worth, I think, and how they engage or disengage in, in relationships. So I really think that that identity has some quite far-reaching effects for, for us all and particularly athletes as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's something unique about the athlete in, in terms of their identity versus somebody who's not in sport? Yeah, I you know, in our society, there is an awful lot of attention on athletes. And I think that athletes in some degree can be kind of glorified just in terms mm -hmm. of their role and their platform that they that they have. And and so I do think though that that to be proficient in sport like other professions, there's an immense amount of time, effort, energy, and resources that are needed to be invested into sport. And and I think that's just an inherent factor just for that a lot of athletes experience. And many athletes have been involved in from the time that they could walk and so for most of their lives. And so it's this interesting kind of construct where despite being tremendously invested in their sport, you know, does this necessarily mean or have to mean that that my identity is is largely, if not entirely, kind of encompassed with that of an athletic identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that certainly have experience as I'm sure you have as well, working with individuals you know, their their identity, this is what I do, but not who I am. You know, it's a part of me. And then others might struggle with that and, and might have an inability to really think about themselves outside of the construct of their sport. Mm -hmm. What have you found in terms of both in the treatment setting and then 
in your coaching, how much people are identifying as athlete and whether they have diverse kind of identity categories? Yeah. So I think an athlete, athletic identity can be certainly a healthy part of an individual's identity. Mm -hmm. I I think though, as a result of significant demands of sport, kind of an over identification to an athlete identity can result in which, you know, perceived self-worth and feelings of deservedness are, are predominantly derived from performance and success in sport. If that's largely contingent on sport participation and, of course, accomplishments, then an individual's identity as an athlete can be threatened if or when sport participation is disrupted by an injury or retirement, or if sport performance is inconsistent or you're going through a a performance slump as well. Mm -hmm. As as most all athletes can attest, uh, achievement in sport and performance can sometimes be quite inconsistent and unpredictable, but if an individual defines himself or herself solely through sport achievement, the sense of self or an identity will will be quite volatile Mm -hmm. um, and and can and will change abruptly depending on how sport performance is going in in the moment. You know, I I always think about myself and if my value and worth are predominantly tied to my sport performance, I don't know about you, but I would be an anxious mess before (laughs) and during competitions. and, And most likely this anxiety would certainly diminish the ability for me to enjoy and have fun participating and competing in sport. And of course, all of these factors would absolutely decrease the likelihood that my athletic performance can be consistent and or maximized. Mm -hmm. Has that ever been a struggle for you? Yeah, I I think it was, you know, it's interesting. I I grew up playing baseball and still have such an affinity for the sport. I I, I just love the sport and the game itself and still do. I, I played and I think my investment in the sport certainly was a was a part of myself and a, and a part of, a big part of my identity and I think that I realized how much so when I hurt I had a shoulder injury and and had to have um, shoulder surgery a couple weeks before heading to college which wasn't really in the plans um, of life mm-hmm. and certainly disrupted that and I, I tried to rehab and come back and I played a little bit but it, my personal kind of athletic career was cut short because of shoulder injury and so my identity I remember at that time being kind of disoriented me for a little while. And I certainly, I'd like to think that I thought of myself, you know, as more than an athlete. And, but, but I think that transition almost kind of forces your hand to really kind of cultivate and develop other parts of yourself. And I, and I think that, you know, I still would like, I still think of myself as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks, it looks differently, but, but I think sometimes the athletes struggle in that if they're injured or they're, you know, transitioning away from their sport, that they're not as, much of an athlete or they're not an athlete if they're not actively competing in their sport at the moment. Right. I've heard that too. That's always interesting to me of just clients or people, how, what they need to be doing in order to be, have that identity be defined and whether that's, you have to be good or competent and have that outcome to define yourself Mm -hmm. as an, as an athlete, or you have to currently be participating in a particular way to be defined as an athlete. I always usually have the reaction to just feeling kind of sad for sad because it's, it's much more of a narrow way that they can claim that identity. And I, I often want them to just claim it because they, yeah. because they do identify that way or they enjoy it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, th- I, I completely agree with that statement. And I also think like in my work with athletes, I often talk about trying to hold parts of yourself in your mind's eye. Mm. Right. And I think that's a powerful skill to have as a human being, especially as an athlete. And so Kind of holding something in your mind's eye is, I am a son, even, and I know that, 
even though my parents aren't sitting in the room with me right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that really ties into identity with athletes, the athletic identity, because you know performance can be quite inconsistent. And, and so how in your mind's eye, in the midst of that, or amidst, uh, in the midst of a high-pressure situation in a, in a game or a high-stakes competition, how in your mind's eye are you able to hold and rest in the fact that I've been very committed in my training you know, regime heading into this race, right. or I've had tremendous dedication and devotion to you know, caring for my body in, in, a, in a way that will really um, allow me to uh, maximize my abilities. And so how, mm. how can, in your mind's eye can you hold on to those things? Because if not, then largely your identity is going to be contingent on what is happening in the here and now, which can uh, very you know, rapidly and, and, and kind of be inconsistent at times. Right. Holding it in your mind's eye, that sounds really like it's just more soothing. Um, mm-hmm. There's a stability to that. I also think of, I'm curious what your experience has been, but it seems like folks generally go through more of that identity crisis when there is an injury, like in in your case, Mm -hmm. or when there's retirement. Have you ever had any athletes be interested in exploring this while they're currently participating and performing and and still are sort of asking those questions? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I think oftentimes when an athlete comes through our doors here at the Victory Program or in my outpatient practice or um, or sometimes even coaching, it, it's sometimes reactive and it's after something, you know, has occurred that is not desirable or has been a, a longstanding struggle where maybe support is needed uh, mm-hmm. to remedy something. And, um, and I think that's understandable, but I also think there's equal, if not more benefit to really leveraging when things are going well in sport and you're performing really well. I, I, I'm a big believer that's just not a coincidence. And I think really trying to understand, you know, factors contributing to why maybe I mean I'm really enjoying and having fun in my sport oh, yeah. this season. Like what what are those factors and and what is different and and it just feels different. And I think trying to really define and 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 better understand that I think is really informative for mm. for athletes equally as such when things aren't going so well. And I we oftentimes have an endless amount of feedback that we receive. Mm-hmm. Um, and athletes especially receive feedback all the time about their performance. Sometimes in the moment, you know, a pitcher makes a pitch and in that split second later, they, they receive feedback about did, did they hit their location. So I think ideally that feedback should be informative and should help kind of orient an individual to engage in a similar situation uh, similarly or a, a slightly different to make modifications very spontaneously. But I think for, for some athletes really struggle when they receive feedback, whether it's, you know, a sport performance or otherwise, if it can be academic, it can be relational, it can be professional and then internalize that feedback to then reflect inadequacies or deficiencies in terms of their identity or their personhood or their qualities. I must be a failure because I didn't perform to my Mm -hmm. liking, you know, in this game, or I just must not be talented enough because this last month I have tanked in pressure situations. So I really think that that feedback is really important, but it's in terms of what to do with it and how, how to make adjustments or if you do internalize that feedback, I think that can be really destructive and can really narrow your sense of self and, and certainly, you know, limit your, just in terms of your identity. Right. So it sounds like for, for somebody who is enjoying their performance and doing well in their performance, you might try to make more explicit some of the factors of why, what's behind that, including mm-hmm. how they might have a more robust sense of identity and then on the other hand, if you're seeing that the feedback that they're receiving externally from others around performance is really impacting them, 
that that's another opportunity of looking at identity work. Yep, absolutely. So kind of to piggyback off of, of what you just said, I do think that sometimes when, when athletes hear, you know, the need to kind of cultivate other parts of themselves in addition to the athletic identity, mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes athletes hear that as you're asking me to be less motivated and committed to my sport. And mm. and that's really not the case at all. And I think I, I always try to reflect to athletes that, you know, dedication to, and commitment to their sport is a strength and we want to hold on to that. Um, but also, too, simultaneously elevating and expanding other parts of their selves as well. Right. Ultimately, fortifying a more expansive self-identity is, is really not intended to decrease the importance of sport, but rather to increase and elevate other parts of oneself that have been neglected or minimized mm-hmm. in proportion to an individual's athlete identity. Mm-hmm. And, and so, as you might imagine, I, I, I think that that process and being better able to do that will better equip an athlete to navigate setbacks you know, in, in sport when they inevitably occur. Right. I know that's been true in my case, the more that, that I did my own kind of healing work and had a more robust sense of identity and became more okay with who I was fundamentally, it just really freed me up in sport to really have Mm -hmm. fun on the basketball court and still care and still, still be competitive and tap into my more athletic self, but it, it didn't have such dire consequences. And in fact, I I played better because I I didn't have so much anxiety. Yeah. You're more more relaxed, I think, and better Mm -hmm. able to let your talent flow. I think a lot of athletes, you know, are very adept at turning the effort dial and really cranking that. And oftentimes the feedback that a lot of athletes get in life is I put in this amount of effort and I get this result. You know, in some regards, it's kind of correlated. But but I do think, though, in, in sport, when you talk to a lot of athletes that are performing well and performing consistently, they're certainly putting forth effort, right? But right. but sometimes it's described as like, you know, the flow state as being a bit effortless mm-hmm. and, and things are just happening. But I oftentimes think when things are not consistent in sport performance or you know, you're in a performance slump, oftentimes there's a tendency to really try to try, you know, there's a tendency to try harder and put forth more effort because I'm a hard worker and this is what I do. And I'm going to find a solution to fix this. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, And and I almost think inherently that oftentimes, you know, um, disallows an an athlete to make these needed changes and remedy performance in Mm -hmm. either ways. Yeah. The seductive idea that more is better. So if I just put more and more and more, my, my outcome should get better, but then yeah, how psychology enters into that and and then even overtraining and physically yep. running yourself ragged. Yeah, and Kara, that, that's a good point because I oftentimes think that the mentality that more is needed is fear-driven, that my, you know, my, my preparation for this season is enough, right? Um, despite some inconsistent performances early in the season. But I, I know I've prepared myself and right. that's enough in resting in that as opposed to coming from a place of fear and that, well, maybe I didn't do enough, or maybe my body needs more training right. than what coaches outlined. And, and, but I think it can be a powerful thing to reflect to an individual that, hey, see, it feels like to me right now and hearing you talk that I understand you're very committed and dedicated and driven and motivated. I think that's without question, um, just kind of how you're wired. But it also seems at some capacity that fear is certainly here as well. And I wonder your thoughts on, you know, it's, if you've noticed that, and then maybe that is contributing to kind of driving you forward in these ways of unwholesome clinging to exercise or rigidity with eating or... Right, right. I've, I've definitely seen the impact of that. Another question that I wonder how much you get from athletes is in terms of developing more parts of themselves and more robust identity outside of being an athlete is the factor of time. And... Mm-hmm. 
I'm wondering what your experience is with that. If you get a lot of pushback about that all sounds nice and good, but I don't have the time to explore other things as a, maybe a, a professional athlete or a student athlete who's balancing school and sport and just the time demand and maybe the, the scarcity of time. I'm curious if that is a barrier you've come across and how you've dealt with that. Yeah, that, that, that is a common challenge. I think for, for most athletes is to how to be efficient with your time and manage what limited time, free time you do have. And there can be a belief that because my time is limited, then I don't have time to kind of cultivate other parts of myself. And, you know, there, there is an element and aspect of that that might, there's some truth in that, just being limited. But, but I, I oftentimes kind of reflect, if an athlete were to say that, that I don't think inherently that a lack of time just disallows you to hold, again, in your mind's eye, other parts of your identity. So, for example, you know, an, if an athlete I'm working with who is very artistic, and really is a talented, talented in drawing and sculpting, and but really rarely just due to time demands and and otherwise in her sport is able to do that consistently. Much like you know, certainly not daily, and, and maybe she's lucky in season weekly, um, just for uh, 10, 20 minutes or so. But but uh, but that's a part of herself that she's really proud of, and I think can identify and connect with. And I think that that doesn't necessarily have to correlate with amount of time invested in in an activity that you engage in. You know, if, if you're a sister and you're later in life and maybe live away from your sister in, in, in another state and maybe don't spend as much time as you did growing up as siblings, does that make you less of a sister in terms of your identity? Does mm-hmm. that diminish that identity? Not necessarily, you know, yeah. and I think it's kind of how it sits internally and how much, I think it's interesting to think about where your mind and thoughts go when at rest and when there's no distraction. Oftentimes that reveals issues of the heart, like what it reveals, I think, what you value the most. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I think that's really indicative, too, of what you like, where your identity kind of lies and rests in. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I was thinking to your point earlier about being fear-driven is this idea that I think is pretty common amongst athletes of I have to be productive all of the time. So in my training, right. it's productive and this idea of maybe me doing something that gives me pleasure, like if that's art or or developing other parts, there can be kind of that hierarchy of, well, that comes last if I have time for it. Or um, how is that going to help me in, in kind of being more singularly focused on the productivity aspect of training and sports? Even though I think when I know when I what I've seen when people experiment with it is actually they see that it's not taking away but there is so much fear to even experiment with spending time doing other things or even resting uh, mm-hmm. that a lot of times they're not getting that felt experience of actually seeing it come back twofold. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there is this quality and characteristic that permeates most athletes and teams. There's really this driven, um, high achieving, relentless pursuit in, you know, in all areas of life. And I think that's a wonderful attribute and disposition and, and oftentimes serves individuals well in school and sport and relationships. But there is this, this need almost to be productive and to feel productive. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you're thinking about in sport, coaches get paid and their jobs depend on an ability to structure training in, in an athlete's training season and cycle that it is periodized. So an athlete is peaking at the right time mm-hmm. for, for races, for a season, there's only a limited amount of time that, you know, you can peak. And I think all coaches and athletes goal is to kind of peak at the right time in season. Mm-hmm. And so part of a good periodization schedule is periods of rest, right? And and in lower volume, lower intensity, you know, there's there's a reason why the top marathoners 
in the world. I know the Boston Marathon was today, but yeah. they take, you know, in the fall, they're, they're well documented. A lot of the elite runners will take an entire month, if not six weeks off of doing anything, like totally off. And I think some athletes reflect, well, that doesn't feel, how can that feel productive? But I think um, there is a, a specific objective in mind for, for just rest or, or allocating time and energy and resources elsewhere too. I think right. that is tremendously productive and, and really supports the cultivating other parts of yourself and, and expanding this identity that I think is so needed. Right. And for, and, and just sustaining to be able to do it for years, right? Like I think that people mm-hmm. that are doing that are competing for years and years, something's going on to allow for that sustainability. And so my assumption is that there's, there's more in their life going on <laughs> to be able to, right. to sustain that. I think we oftentimes promote, you know, long-term sport involvement. And I think trying to pace yourself in a way that you can engage in your sport in a manner that is sustainable long-term, mm-hmm. I think is the ultimate goal. Yeah. Does anybody come to mind when you think of work that you've done around identity with either one of your athletes or one of the clients at Victory? Yeah. So, so I, I have this exercise that I do. It's pretty straightforward and simplistic. And I think you discussed on the last podcast, kind of a version thereof, but I think it can be really powerful. And it's always interesting for me to see the athletes in the Victory program kind of respond and how they respond. And it is around identity. And it's simply to have an individual think about their identity and how they think about themselves and see themselves and almost draw a pie chart mm-hmm. uh, and try to, as best they can, you know, allocate different portions of the pie to different parts of themselves and their identity. And it's, it's interesting to see individuals do this because most of the athletes that we, you know, work with are get kind of a wide range, but primary demographic is oftentimes college athletes. And, mm-hmm. you know, we see few athletes really, they'll, they'll jot down like their sport or, or athlete and then, and then really struggle to think about other parts of themselves and will kind of just sit with this stare and really be challenged and perplexed to allocate other portions of the pie. And, and I think that's, that's very indicative, can be very yeah. eye-opening. And I remember one athlete, she was a runner, who, who had that same experience and that struggle to really think about herself in ways outside of that as a runner. She did say, I'm a healthy person <laughs> as, a, mm-hmm. as another big part of like mm-hmm. her identity. But I think what was most interesting to me was when she... And then I also had them process and talk about that and share reflections that they had in that exercise. But I also then had them do the same thing, but in terms of for your future self, you know, if that's five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, like, how would you like to think about yourself? And what would you like your identity to look like? And it was interesting to see the contrast. And and this athlete in particular got extremely detailed Mm. in terms of other parts of herself that she neglected and minimized uh, currently that she would like to cultivate. So one was she liked to dance. And I think as a dancer, she saw herself and wanted to think of herself more as a friend and as a volunteer. She even mm-hmm. had um, as a pet owner there as well. <laughs> but I think it was really fascinating. And of course, the dialogue then opens thereafter when you've got this future self and this identity that you would like to achieve, even though it is a bit abstract, like well, what, what, what is needed to kind of bridge this gap here in terms of how mm-hmm. you think about yourself? And I, I think they can be fruitful discussions, but I, it is an interesting exercise to think about because sometimes we over-identify in certain parts of our life that, that maybe we wish we didn't and conversely under-identify too with other parts too. Mm-hmm. It's neat to hear that she did have an idea of what she wanted in her future self, that she was connected mm-hmm. to things outside of her athlete side. I think I said in the last episode when I was doing my own work, I just felt blank when I was going mm-hmm. through my recovery process. There, It just felt like a, a blank canvas. Yep. So it's neat that she she was connected to some things. 
Absolutely. And I think athletes in general, and especially eating disorders and the intersection of the two, I think can, the combination can really narrow, you know, identity. And I, and mm-hmm. I've, I've, I have never heard of an individual seeking intensive treatment for their eating disorder, describing upon admission to our care as having very robust and fulfilling yeah. relationships socially with others. There's, mm-hmm. that, that often I've never heard that. And there's oftentimes this detachment and disengagement in many areas of life, but especially socially as well, and this isolation. And I think that eating disorder and sometimes sport, too, can kind of disallow you to really cultivate other parts of yourself that I think are so needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember a coach telling me that you have school, sports, and friends, and you can only do two of the three well. And as an achiever, I was like, ah, <laughs> I want to do all of them well. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but that will, that, that comment has, hadn't left. <laughs> and it puts you in a box, it very limits you, right? Like you right. got to make a choice and can totally. only choose two. <laughs> and then the achieving, right, of like, yeah, it has to be um, in a particular way to be able to claim it again. I think that's always a, a whenever we get into those conversations at Opal um, in our rethinking and exercise and sport group, I... I love just challenging, well, why don't, why can't you claim that identity? What, what is saying that that can't be a part of yourself? And mm-hmm. what is, where does that message come from? And just digging more and more into why do they have such a narrow definition of what yeah. it means to be an athlete or what it means to be a student or what it means to be kind or, and it's, you know, often, well, I feel like I have to do it a hundred percent of the time and be better than most of the population. <laughs> right. Like, dang, Absolutely. well, that's, that's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah. And, and oftentimes there's this like, there's this desire to strive to be better, you know, and, and I think sometimes there's, there's a tendency to kind of strive or search for questions that are unanswerable, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want to be a better friend. Well, what exactly does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be a more committed team member. Well, how do you quantify, like, how can you quantify that? Like, will you know when you've gotten there? Right. <laughs> um, right. That is challenging too. when you know, there's this yearning and desire to improve in certain areas of life. But really, the ability to quantify and, and know if or when you've gotten there, wherever there is, mm-hmm. is, is kind of non-existent. So you're relentlessly pursuing, but really not knowing or will ever know if you've ever kind of reached that destination. Right. I know. I, I like to ask the question, well, what if you just like it? Like, what if it's just co- <laughs> it's pleasurable? Can you claim that mm-hmm. as your identity because you like to dance? <laughs> yeah. Right? And you do it every once in a while. Can that be in your identity pie chart? Yeah. And it's hard for athletes too. If they don't feel proficient at something, then that can't be my identity because I'm not good at that. And I think that that kind of aligns with what you're saying about, you know, well, just because you enjoy doing this, like, isn't that enough? Right. Well, in that vein, is there anything that you um, would encourage listeners in ways that they can grow in their, if they're interested in growing in their identity work, is there any encouragement you have or or pieces of wisdom to pass on? Oh boy. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I think kind of just to reiterate maybe what I said a little bit earlier, I I think the ability to develop a more robust identity and self-representation can help an individual securely and confidently answer questions such as, who am I without my sport mm-hmm. um, when continued sport participation is in jeopardy or ends or isn't going how, how you planned. And I think the, again, kind of the process is not intended for those athletes, you know, listening to decrease the, the importance of sport in one's life, but really rather to have increased and elevate the other parts of oneself that have been neglected mm-hmm. um, or minimized in proportion again to that athlete identity. And I think when, an individual is able to cultivate that broader sense of self, I think they're more likely to experience setbacks 
and successes in sport kind of more easily and more readily than, than if their identity is kind of unidimensionally entrenched in that of an athlete. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, one of the things I'm taking away from something you shared is that image of the what you can hold in your mind's eye, kind of something that can hold a more stable category really within any identity. I think, I think the last thing, Kara, that I'll just add, and I think mm-hmm. a visual that I think for the athletes, you know, we talk about in our groups, I envision kind of holding a bouquet of balloons and each balloon represents kind of a part of yourself and, and a part of your identity. But there will be times in life where one of those balloons or multiple balloons are popped, mm-hmm. right? A relationship ends, sport ends. Otherwise, you get fired from your job. And I think that certainly will be destabilizing. But if you have other balloons to kind of bolster you up, I think you can kind of, you know, stabilize more readily as opposed to, of course, if you're holding on to that to that one balloon and that one balloon pops, it's, it's not going to be a pretty fall. And I think right. that's an image I just kind of keep in my mind, too, and just kind of working you know, with this population and for myself too, Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. I like the imagery. You know, one thing I was thinking of is it's just so cool, Riley, that here we are in Seattle and St. Louis doing such similar work, you know, and and hearing similar things from clients. And I love that. I love, it feels like a kinship of the work that we're doing. So that's fun. I agree. I always love talking to other people in the field because there is this like shared experience like, oh, you too. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's kind of nice because sometimes sometimes the work can be, you know, and I'm blessed to kind of be part of multidisciplinary teams here, Mm -hmm. you know, really have great team members to bounce stuff off of regularly. But especially in private practice, it can be a bit isolating. Yeah. Well, and there's not a lot out there for I don't think there's a lot of great resources. So I remember even when I went to Victory last year and you presented on identity, I was like, yeah, totally. I know. <laughs> and it's just fun <laughs> to have another person put words and and a different way of putting words to things than you do. I always love thinking of new ways to, to talk about things, too. So that's fun. Like the mind's eye thing I have, it, you know, I like I like that that framework. Well, I really appreciate you doing this interview today and being with us. Um, and talking about something you so clearly care about and are passionate about and doing really good work in the world. So thanks, Riley. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for having me and for, for all the work that you're doing as well. Thanks again to Dr. Riley Nichols for joining us. And thank you for listening. Thanks to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's music, and to Sarah Taylor for production assistance and editing. You can stay in touch with what's new on the Appetite by subscribing to the podcast on your preferred podcast app. If you have the time, we'd also so appreciate it if you'd leave a review of the podcast there. This can make it so much easier for others interested in non-diet approaches to food and body to find our podcast. If you have any questions or just want to connect, please email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. To learn more about Opal specifically, about any of our programming or special events, visit us at www.opalfoodandbody.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to stay in touch with you. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.